everybody. Welcome to True Crime University. This is your Professor Debbie. How's everybody today? I had a pretty good day. I got my car back. It was getting fixed and it's nice to have a car again. It was nice today here. Me and Nathan sat on the porch and I totally forgot. You remember, I don't know, a couple episodes ago, I told you when I hit 500 downloads that we would have a party. And I'm at like, last time I checked, it was 546, I think. So thank you, everybody, all around the world for listening to me. It really means a lot. I'm so flattered that you choose to spend your valuable time listening to me talk. I figured out what we're going to do for fun, and I hope that everybody likes it. At the end of this episode, we're going to have a crime quiz. You know, like Jeopardy or some game show. We're going to have a quiz. And I'll leave it to you to score yourself at home. And you can reward yourself with whatever kind of prize that you feel is appropriate. I trust you to do that. So, today's case, I told you that we're going to do some killer mums for Mother's Day month. Um, I've, I've seen it in the news. It's referred to as the Farmville murder, which is really stupid. And we'll talk about why it's stupid. And I, I think it was just the media called it that because the mother, who was very young, happened to be playing Farmville on her computer when her baby started crying. So she shook him and he ended up dying. And Farmville had nothing to do with the murder itself. And um, there's very little information on this case. I have one video clip... or. One news clip, it's like a minute long. I mean, I couldn't find it. I, I found a, I don't even know if you could call it a book, but it's a Kindle book, and it was really short. I'll put what it's called in the source notes. And um, it's so short that it's more like a, a brochure or something. So it was really hard for me to find information. So what I decided that I would do, is use this opportunity to talk about other aspects of this case and use it as a teaching tool. Now, I think everybody knows by now, or should know, that my podcast is all about education. And I found a lot of points in this particular case that are good for educating about certain things. And what I like is when I'm doing research for a case and I learn something. Not that I know everything already, but um, in this case, I learned about babies. You know, human babies, which I knew pretty much nothing about other than that they poop and make noise. And that's going to be a big factor in this case. So if you're a new parent or you know somebody who is, you might want to tell them what you've learned here. And we're also going to talk about mental health, which I should be an expert on because I have mental illnesses, as I've mentioned. So with that said, my disclaimer, all of the information I'm going to talk about is available to the public and any sound clips. I have one, it's from court, is also public. And this podcast is for information and education. I mean, no disrespect to anybody, especially victims or their families. I in no way intend to glorify criminals. And I'm not able to diagnose anybody. I don't have any credentials. When I talk about somebody's psychology, it's just speculation. And like I mentioned, psychology is an important part of this case. So, today's crime occurred in... 
the city of Jacksonville, Florida, which is on the Atlantic coast of Florida. It's a big city. And the killer mom in this case is Alexandra Tobias. She was born August 11th of 1988. And at the time of this crime, she was 22. She was described as fun-loving and mischievous. Her parents divorced when she was five. And she said that one of her earliest memories is of her mother throwing a plate at her dad's head, which isn't real, doesn't sound real good. She would later say that she was raped at a young age. I don't know who raped her or how old she was, but again, not, not a pleasant experience. Her mother was often negligent or neglectful of her, and this will be significant. She said, quote, my mom was severely bipolar. When she was at her low, which was pretty often, she would try to kill herself. And she did try to commit suicide a couple of times and was admitted to a psychiatric hospital for the fact that her lows got so low, end quote. And her mother also had a drug problem. There's a forensic psychologist named Paula Martin, who's referred to often in the book that I used for this. And I don't know exactly what her role is. I tried to look her up. I, I couldn't find anything about her. I assume she talked to Alexandra because she knows so much about her. And um, Dr. Martin said, quote, Alexandra felt rejection by her own mother. She thought that if her mother wanted to kill herself, if she wanted out of this life, then Alexander herself must not be worth the trouble, end quote. And Alex, as she goes by Alex, after a suicidal episode, she supposedly said to her mother, if you love me so much, then live for me. Now, importantly, Alex herself has not officially been diagnosed as bipolar, but she does have the symptoms. And when she was 16, she walked in the living room to find her mother dead, sitting on the couch with the TV still on from the night before. So she'd been sitting there dead for who knows how many hours. She died of heart disease. Oh my God, that had to have been so traumatic walking in and there's your mom laying there dead on the couch. And Alex says, quote, it shattered me. It broke me. I've never coped with it, unquote. She graduated from Wolfson High School. She did want to go to college, but her plans got kind of derailed. She met a, a guy named Earl Edmondson, who goes by EJ, and he would end up being her baby's father. She described him as a bad boy. And she said she fell for him because he doesn't want a girlfriend. That doesn't sound real healthy to me. So she ended up getting pregnant and they lived together. She put off her plans for college. When she heard that she was pregnant, she said that she was thrilled, but also scared. Now her relationship with EJ has always been unstable. As a matter of fact, three weeks before the baby, his name was Dylan, was killed, they were both arrested for domestic conflict. And I don't have any more details on that incident other than they got into some kind of fight and the police were called. Now, because there was a baby in the house, the Department of Child Children and Families was notified. They were supposed to be informed of this incident and kind of keep track of what was going on with the situation. They later said they that they had received an incomplete report. I don't know if 
that's true or um, agencies like that. I don't know what they're like in Florida, but they're kind of notorious for being um, not real with it, I guess, because they're so overwhelmed. So Alex was given six months of probation and told to go to anger management. We have no information on whether she actually attended anger management or not. I've also heard that anger management classes are like useless, so, but I mean, I, I really have no personal experience with that. Dr. Martin said that Alex certainly inherited her mother's manic episodes. She would become agitated, irritable, irritated, and then go on to being depressed and even suicidal. And um, I'm not, I can't speak for Alex. I don't know what her personality was like, but when you're bipolar, there's, and of course I know this from experience, you get manic, which is like high, you get depressed, which is low, and then there's something called a mixed state. And the best way to describe a mixed state, I think it, it's like you're, it's like a combination of both. That's why they call it mixed. It's like you're, I mean, pick, try to picture this and just, you know, play with me for a little bit. Um, you're Mood is heightened, but it's it's not happy. It's more of like a, a very irritable state where everything and everybody gets on your nerves. And you don't want people to talk. To, well, I mean, at least for me, it's like, don't look at me. Don't talk to me. Just leave me alone. Think of it as a drink. And it would be a glass full of mania with a side garnish of ugly despair. If you can make any sense of that. And because moods are so important in this case, this is important to keep in mind. Now, in addition to, I'm trying to paint you a picture of Alex's, what I think was her frame of mind when she killed her son. She had probably bipolar. She had an unstable relationship. She also was suffering from postpartum depression. And we're going to talk about that later. She was supposedly having suicidal ideations. And she is said to have, when her baby cried, she is said to have taken it as a personal failure. And when um, Dylan's dad came home, he Dylan would cry. I don't know if it was just a coincidence, like he just happened to, to start crying, or he's like, oh, that's that dude, I don't like, why? So Alex would start connecting the presence of EJ with her baby being unhappy. And she said, quote, I wanted to kill myself. I was tired of arguing with his father. I was tired of hurting on the inside. He was a newborn. Even though I wouldn't be there, I would no longer be a part of the equation that was hurting him, end quote. Her friend said that she was fiercely maternal towards Dylan. And a family friend named Jason Smith told the media that she always took him to the doctor if he had a cold or etc. Well, I mean, not to um, refute that, but I think most people do take their kid to the doctor when they're sick. That's not really saying a whole lot. But Jason was quoted in the media as saying, that girl is so protective over that baby. There should be more investigation done. I just don't know if she just snapped or what. Alex said that she loved motherhood. And she said, quote, it, it was beautiful. I couldn't get enough of him. I didn't want people touching him. I didn't want them to break him. I didn't want nobody to do anything to him. His cries were like music. They weren't really sad to me because that's him. That's his way of communicating, end quote. 
So, January 18th of 2010. This was day before the crime. She seems to have spent an inordinate amount of time on Facebook. And that's going to come up. She was on Facebook. I don't know if you're familiar with it, how they have these, like, personality quizzes. They come up, you know, like, your friend Joe took this quiz. And um, which type of cheese are you most like? Or, or, you know, stupid shit like that. Well, she took a personality quiz, and whoever made this quiz should be shot, because it came back saying to her that you have a bipolar personality, and then it said, quote, way to go, you crazy person. You are too much for any one person to handle, including yourself, end quote. Now, as a bipolar person, I found that find that offensive. That's just rude. Don't say that we're crazy, and we're too much for anybody to handle. And I've seen this mentioned, this personality quiz mentioned a couple different places, so it must be significant. And I don't know if seeing this put her in some kind of a mood, or it did something to her mental state. I don't know. But I'm just guessing that because it's mentioned a couple times that it must hold some importance. So the next day was January 19th, and her friends would later say that her behavior that day was the opposite of what her usual behavior was. Um, She took, quote, a good handful of Xanax, which she was not prescribed. And I want to veer off, but I wanted to talk a little bit about Xanax right now. First of all, it is a really bad idea to take medicine which is not prescribed for you. I mean, that shouldn't even have to be said. Xanax is a benzodiazepine, also known as a benzo. It's a very common tranquilizer prescribed, and in fact, it has a high rate of misuse. You see it misused often. It it seems to be, for some reason, like a party drug. I've, I've heard of people snorting it, which I can't figure out. I just... I mean, it's it's a depressant. It's supposed to calm you down. So why would you want to snort it? And I actually have it, and everybody reacts different to medicine. But for me, it doesn't do a whole lot of anything. It's like eating candy. But I have to keep in mind that we're talking about somebody else who it might have a total different effect on. And it's said to have a black box warning, which means it may be addictive. You're supposed to take it only as prescribed. And the withdrawal from it can be life-threatening. Remember, she said that she took a handful. And without knowing how many she took or how many milligrams her pill, well, they're not even hers. I don't know whose they were. The pills were, and it's pretty hard to speculate anymore. But let's just say that she took too much, which she probably did. It can have mild to serious side effects. If you take too much, you can experience drowsiness, poor coordination, blurred vision, confusion, reduced reflexes, slurred speech, and even a coma or death. It is the most common benzo involved in emergency room visits involving ODs, which means basically of all the benzos, it's the one that people OD on the most. What she should have done, and um, I know it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback, but like I said, I want us to learn from this. If you think you take too much of any medicine, what you should do is call the Poison Control Center or 911. So 
if she took a shitload of Xanax, she must have been feeling something, either anxiety or, I mean, I guess that's why you would take Xanax, or you, you would take a bunch of it, you would think. So she was in some kind of bad mental state to begin with, and this is not going to turn out well for, for Dylan. She got on Facebook on her, and she didn't have, like, a smartphone. It was on, like, an actual computer. And she was real active on Facebook. She actually made a page for Dylan. And she would post what his height and weight was on certain days. On this day, he was three months old. This is a little bit ironic. Just a few weeks before the murder, she joined a Facebook group that opposes baby shaking. So she gets onto the game Farmville. And I want to take a couple minutes to talk about Farmville because it, so much is made of it. If you've never seen it or you don't know what it is, it started on Facebook on 2009. It's called an agricultural simulation game, and it's a social network game. It was the most popular game on Facebook. It hit its peak in March of 2010, which is just about the time that this happened. 83 million people a year reportedly played Farmville. It was the most popular Facebook app ever. They had people play from all demographics, all ages and races and everything. That's what was so appealing about it was literally anybody play it. And it encouraged you to be social, like have friends or they called them neighbors. Yeah, played it. And visit each other's farms and, and do things like help them out. And in the game, you had a farm and you would plant and harvest crops, raise and collect from farm animals like milk and but eggs, whatever. And you would, like, decorate your farm, and you could spend real money in the game. I'm not going to tell you if I did or not. I did read one time where there were more people playing Farmville in the world than there were actual farmers. So, this brings us to what role did Farmville play in this crime? And I, I already told you that I think that it, it didn't. Just because it was a so-called... Mm, okay, how do I put this? Farmville was a very, I'm going to use the word, boring game. There was no action, like in some of these. I'm not into to video games, but I used to be into computer games. Like Roller Coaster Tycoon was my all-time favorite. And even then, as engrossing as that was, I could and would stop playing it for something important. Now, there's been a lot of studies on games and the psychological effect of them. And when they talk about these games, they're referring to the video games, the more involving, like you're shooting things or you're, I don't even know what they are, like you're supposedly in a war or you're running from zombies or whatever. But a lot of studies have been done on the effect of these games on people's behavior. And I'll go over a couple of them. The positive aspects of these games is they su supposedly improve basic visual processes. They can enhance executive functioning. They can improve everyday skills like hand-eye coordination. And they can ease anxiety and depression. The negative things have been found that they can make people more violent. They may interfere with people's ability to concentrate 
They may exacerbate impulsiveness. They can become addictive, supposedly. And one study found that one in ten youth was addicted to video games. And it also said that playing these games can cause family, social, school, or psychological problems. And they may increase depression or anxiety. And literally for every study on video games that has something positive, there's one that has the opposite. So pretty much the takeaway is that for every positive, there's a negative, which kind of equals out to a zero, right? I mean, I'm bad at math, real bad, but even I can figure out that that equals zero. So I'm going to guess that the difference is the person themselves, their personality, how much they play the game, what the game involves. And I'll tell you that Farmville is, because it's such a tame, boring game, it has virtually no effect on a person as far as psychologically or behaviorally. I know I'm not a shrink, but I feel pretty confident in saying that. So what happened is that day, Alex was playing Farmville and Dylan started crying, as babies do. So she said that after a while, she was irritated because he kept crying. So she, I don't know what he was in, if he was laying in something or sitting in something, but she picked him up, shook him, quote, roughly. Later, she added that she put him down. She paused to smoke a cigarette, I guess maybe calm down for a while or something. So while he's she puts him on the couch. Her dog knocked him off the couch, which doesn't improve his mood. So he cries even more because now he's got a broken leg. So he, the poor dude starts crying again. So she picks him up and shakes him again. So a few minutes later, she noticed that he had stopped breathing. So who does she call? No, not 911, but his dad. Don't know why. Then she called 911. And of course they say, well, here, do CPR. And they give you instructions. By the way, anybody who has a baby or you're going to have one, you should know infant CPR. It is different in babies. You, and I know this because I was an EMT, you use your fingers to do chest compressions, not your hand, because you crush them. It's, and you blow like puffs of air in their face instead of making the seal with your mouth. It is different, so if you're going to have a baby, please learn infant CPR. So the medics come, and they're like, oh shit, this ain't good. So they go to the hospital. Dylan would die the next morning. He was 14 weeks old. He had bruising of his skull and bleeding on his brain. She was charged with aggravated murder. Later, she said that she was mad at him for interrupting Farmville, and she shook him, and he hit his head on the computer. And she said, quote, I got off the computer, took my pit bull outside, let him go to the bathroom, and when, like, the next thing was more clear was the fact that he wasn't breathing in my arms anymore, unquote. And then she, she goes on to say, I honestly can't recall the actual incident itself. But when it comes down to it, I had taken Xanax. I guess I came to and realized that something I was holding before that was moving was no longer moving. Dr. Martin says, quote, Alex had to detach herself from the situation. She refers to her baby as something. She can't bring herself to say my son or Dylan, end quote. 
She said that she doesn't remember shaking him or him hitting his head. And Dr. Martin said she blamed the incident on her taking too much Xanax. Xanax can make you black out. But she, quote, came to when she found out the baby wasn't breathing. So clearly the jury wouldn't give her a pass on that. She simply should not have been left in the care of an infant by herself. She was mentally unstable with a family history of bipolar disorder. It is a failure. Is it a failure of the system? And I have this underlined because right here is the key to this whole thing. This is from Dr. Martin. It is a failure of Alexandra to not realize the warning signs in her own life and get professional help, end quote. That sums everything up right there. It was on her to realize that she needed professional help and to get it, especially now that she literally has another helpless life depending on her. I mean, it's one thing if you're single and you don't have any kids to take care of, but it's totally different if now you're a mother, a first-time mother, and you have somebody else whose life is dependent on you. So, a doctor named Stephen Bloomfield testified at her trial that she took unprescribed Xanax, which can make somebody who's already depressed more depressed. Because remember, it's a depressant. It's taken for anxiety. It's taken to lower your like heart rate and breathing and stuff like that. Now, October 29th of 2010, she pled guilty to second-degree murder. And the evidence presented at her trial, or her sentencing hearing, because she didn't have a trial, she pled guilty. The prosecution, I don't know where they got this from, I'm guessing that, you know how, well, just take my word for it. When you're in jail and you make a phone call, they're all recorded. They presented a phone call that was made from jail, in which she admits that she lied about blacking out. Then her sister Elizabeth took the stand. And she said, quote, she was a young mother. She was under a lot of stress, but I don't see her doing anything malicious. She knows better, end quote. So the, the psychologist, Dr. Bloomfield, again testified, and he said her experiences with her bipolar mother could have caused an unhealthy frame of mind and inability to cope normally with everyday stressors, which t makes total sense. Alex herself told the judge that she had been suffering from postpartum depression. She said, I hate myself for what I did, but not for who I am. So she made a deal to that if she pled guilty to second degree murder, she would get 25 to 50 years. Well, on February 1st of 2011, Judge Adrian Saud sentenced her to 50 years. And he said, when he sentenced her, quote, he who is the most defenseless among us was murdered by his own mummy. And why? Because he was crying during a game of Fishville or Farmville or whatever was going on during Facebooking time that day. End quote. We shall be incarcerated for a term of 50 years. Alexandria Tobias had little reaction when the judge told her she will spend the next 50 years in jail for shaking her young baby to death. These are photos of Dylan Edmondson taken just a few weeks before he died. Tobias admitted to shaking him to death because he wouldn't stop crying while she was playing a game on Facebook. She asked the judge to be lenient. I am trying to say this is not this is a plea about not a plea about pity. 
I'm asking for mercy. I realize I do deserve consequences, but the death of my son is a life sentence in itself. So could you please consider that I am still young and I have ambition, potential, hopes, and dreams. The baby's father was in court. Now, he didn't want to speak, but the baby's grandfather did. This unspeakable act has robbed our family of his first words, his first steps, his first base hit, his first sweetheart, and a lifetime of memories that could only be cherished by all of us. Now, at first, Alex tried to downplay her role in the death of Dylan. So, Dr. Martin said that, quote, Alex really disassociated herself from the situation. She simply could not deal with what she had done, so initially her mindset was one of denial. Her behavior was not of a shell-shocked mother guilty for what she had done. She would blame everyone else from the computer to the boyfriend, to her grandmother, and even the dog, end quote. I don't know where the boyfriend and the grandmother come in. I, like I said, there's very little information available on this case. I didn't even find a mention of her grandmother anywhere. But remember I told you that of all the criminals I'd ever met, they all had one thing in common, which was inability to take responsibility for their behavior. That's exactly what Alex is doing here. Um, it wasn't my fault. It was Farmville or my dog or my grandmother or my boyfriend. It, it's with all, all criminals. And I think if you look back on the cases that we've covered, it's always somebody else's fault. And Alex was actually interviewed by Candace DeLong. I don't know if fans know who she is. She's pretty famous. She is a former FBI profiler, you know, with the Behavioral Science Unit. And she's on TV trying to, I've seen her on a number of shows, like commenting on criminals and, and behavior and such. And Candace said that her attitude had seriously deteriorated and she seems to have finally accepted her role in the crime and her responsibility for the crime. And Alex herself said, quote, I didn't come to terms with that it was actually me up until a couple of years ago. I had that realization when I met my niece. She opened my eyes to the life that I took and the choice that I took to have drugs. When I see my sister with my niece, it breaks my heart. It still breaks my heart. She's so good with her, and I know I'd be like that with my son. It's something I have to live with the rest of my life. I don't need to run from it anymore. I need to face it. End quote. She said she deals with it by mutilating herself or cutting, which... A lot of people do, especially bipolar people. It allows her to focus on the physical pain rather than the emotional pain, which anybody will tell you is a lot worse. And she said, quote, I hurt somebody. So the way I hurt somebody is the way I hurt myself. It helps, but it's something I have to constantly go through. It's not just something that I have to go through one day. I don't want to feel those feelings, so instead of embracing them, I'll inflict them, end quote. And she said she doesn't think she'll ever forgive herself. I don't know her, I've never met her, but if we're to believe those statements, it sounds like the time that she's been sitting in prison has maybe made her realize exactly what happened. And I'm assuming that she has had by now some kind of psychological diagnosis and that she's probably on medication so she's probably more stable and able to realize you know exactly what she did 
and the consequences. And it makes me think of Brenda Spencer. Remember her? That was that was like my second episode. She was messed up as a teenager. She shot the school kids, or she shot at the school kids. And now she's like 58, and she's had a lot of time to think and to be medicated. And now she takes responsibility for what she did. So I told you that the media made a, a, I mean, not that it shouldn't be made a big deal of because she killed her baby, but the fact that she was playing Farmville at the time just seemed to make it more um, marketable or glamorous, interesting, like, get, you know, headline grabbing. And there's something called Hollywood Life, which is a website, and somebody wrote on there, that it was, quote, disgusting. I can't stomach this kind of abuse. Considering that so many of my friends and family are struggling to conceive, it really enrages me that mothers can be so careless with their kids that they were blessed to have, unquote. And I didn't get to see this, but supposedly Nancy Grace on CNN Headline News really went off on um, Alex and Shooter, new asshole, for about an hour. And she said that Alex spent hours living in her imaginary world with imaginary friends on an imaginary farm. And that's not true at all. Like I, I said, the fact that she was playing Farmville, or the, even the fact that she was on the computer, had nothing to do with why she shook her baby. And supposedly Alex met a dude in jail while she was waiting, sentencing, and somehow the media got hold of it, and I, I've seen a, a couple mentions of it, and Nancy Grace read a little bit of this letter on her show, and it says, hey baby, I hope you had a good weekend. Thanks for the compliment and the beautiful Valentine's picture. I've had my eye on you since I've been here, but too shy to do anything about it. I think you're sexy as hell. And on the show, Nancy discussed the time that Alex spent playing Farmville and something else called Fishville. And she had people call in and comment. And one caller, probably who played these games himself, said that checking the games, like the, I don't know how your crops are doing or your fish are doing, whatever, took a lot of time. And that an interruption would cause agitation. And again, it doesn't have anything to do with the game. There was another caller named Dr. Mary Aiken, who is, I never heard of this, this is really interesting, a forensic cyber psychologist. And she wrote something called Cyber Effect. A pioneering cyber psychologist explains how human behavior changes online. It explores the role of technology in the escalation of an explosive act of violence. And she said, quote, Can we say that Alexandra was addicted? Is the explanation that simple? Her virtual cattle were doing fine, but her real life was in ruin. And the baby daddy, EJ, said, quote, that is insulting. It wasn't about Farmville. It was about my son, end quote. Dr. Martin said the media focused almost, almost exclusively on the social media aspect of the case. The fact that she was on Facebook and on Farmville made for good copy because it was so popular. This was more of a case of a violent bipolar personality who was alone with a baby. And isn't that what, that's literally what I just said. And at first I took offense to the term violent bipolar. 
I mean, everything I've always, not just because I am, but everything I've always read about bipolar said that we are not more likely to be violent than anybody else. In fact, we're more likely to be suicidal. Um, so I did some research and I didn't really like what I found. Studies have shown that in people who are bipolar, that they are statistically more violent if they also abuse substance. So it, it looks like it's not bipolar disorder on its own that makes you more likely to be violent, but combined with the substance abuse. And one statistic I found said that bipolar people who are also addicted to a substance are six times more likely to be convicted of a violent crime than the general population. A lot of bipolar people do what they call self-medicate. It means instead of going to a psychiatrist and getting on medicine like you're supposed to, they either, for whatever reason, don't, and they choose to do something with their feelings, whether of, you know, we feel depressed, we feel manic, we feel agitated, and some people may turn to different substances such as alcohol or cocaine or it looks kind of looks like Alex used uh, Xanax. Different substances to control your feelings instead of, like I said, the medicine that, that you should. And this quote comes from Alex herself and it's really, I think, insightful. And she says, if you feel like you're unstable mentally, physically, whatever it might be, don't ignore it. Don't think that you can make it better because sometimes you need a little extra to help you to seek that help because if I would have seeked the proper help, my state of mind might not have been where, where it was at and my son would have never been put in that predicament. Like I said, she seems to have hit the nail on the head there. If, I mean, this, this is just to anybody, whether you're pregnant or you're, you have kids or you don't or whatever. If you're struggling with something, if you're depressed or you're anxious or if you're upset or whatever, go see a psychologist or a therapist or somebody or your, even your doctor. There's no stigma in that. There's no shame in that. I remember when I was, uh, okay, it was back in the 70s. I was a kid and it was my first trip. I'd been to therapists and psychologists and such all my life. And this was my first trip to an actual shrink, you know, a psychiatrist. And I was seven or eight. And I remember I was there with my mom and we were in the waiting room and there was the door that you came in and you sat there in the, wait in the waiting room. And then there was a door that you went into his office. And then there was another door in his office that you left from. And I'm like, what? Why is there two doors? I, I didn't understand it. And my mom said, well, it's so that people don't see you going in and out. And I'm like, well, I I don't understand that. That doesn't make sense. Why would you want a, people not to see you? And she had to explain it to me. She's like, well, it's like embarrassing that you're going to a, you know, a psychiatrist. So I learned that going to seek mental health was something to be ashamed of, which is terrible, really, when you think about it. I mean, that's I mean, hopefully we've come a long way in all of the doctors that I've been to in the meantime, they don't have the two-door thing. And it's, you know, there's just a waiting room and nobody looks at, well, I mean, at least I don't, I don't look at somebody and think, gee, I wonder why he's here or what, what's wrong with her. I mean, it's just, 
like it should be. Like everybody just sits there and, you know, you're waiting to see whoever you're waiting to see. And, and that's what you have to do, just like any other doctor. And uh, that's my little soapbox thing. So we know that Dylan, his, his name was Dylan Lee Edmondson, and he was 14 weeks old. We know that he died of shaken baby syndrome. But what exactly is shaken baby syndrome? And I did some research. I found a couple resources and I put them in my show notes. It's also called abusive head trauma. And in the United States, every year between 1,000 and 3,000 babies experience this shaking. But they think that a lot of cases are either unreported or undiagnosed. Most often it happens in children under five. One in four babies will die from it, and of those who survive, 80% will have some kind of permanent brain damage. What happens when you do this? You obviously pick up a baby and, and shake them back and forth, and the brain slams back and forth against the skull, resulting in bleeding around the brain and damage to the brain. It can also cause bleeding into the back of the eyes, and if the baby doesn't die, they diagnose this by a CT scan. And the only treatment that I read about was surgery, and they possibly put a stent in the brain, which, like, drains the fluid that builds up in, in your, like, spinal fluid or, you know, the, the fluid in your head that kind of protects your brain. And these people are, they found, more likely to be at risk to shake their babies. And this is not only parents, but it's also caregivers, like a babysitter, a nanny, so forth. Those who use substances, which would be Alex. Those who are under emotional stress, which would also be her. Those who are having financial trouble. Those who have, in the past, committed acts of child abuse and in 33 to 40 percent of the cases, the child had prior head injuries. They found that these parents or the people who do this often have unrealistic expectations from their kid. They expect their baby to fulfill some kind of need that they have. And the best weapon in stopping this shaking of babies is educating new parents. And this is very important. I'm going to put some resources in my notes and also a couple. There's some cool little like posters that they made on what to remember so that you don't do this. They have a program and it's called Period of Purple Crying Prevention Program. And I will tell you in a little bit what purple crying means. I saw it. I was like, what? What's that? I'm Because how would I know? And a study said that since they've started doing this program, there has been a 35% reduction in shaken baby syndrome, which is pretty significant if you think about it. So the thing that most often causes somebody to shake a baby is frustration with crying. And the period of purple crying is the, the period when a baby goes through what they call uncontrollable crying. And supposedly this happens at ages two weeks to four to five months. And they started this in 2009. And the program material includes a DVD, a booklet, and if you have a mobile phone, it actually has an app on there. And when I talk about they, 
the organization that puts out this program is the National Center on Shaken Baby Syndrome. And Ryan Steinbagel, who is the executive director of this organization, says, quote, We have heard from countless parents and caregivers about how the information in the period of purple crying has helped them understand their baby's crying and feel less frustrated. This new study is further evidence that the program helps families and keeps babies safe, unquote. So purple crying is also called colic. And I did hear of colic. It's when babies just like scream and cry and carry on and can't be soothed. And my mom, see, when I talk about a case, I like to pull from my own experience and things so that I can understand things and talk to you about them. And like I said, I have no experience with babies at all. I held my niece and nephew when they were first born and it was it was a great feeling it was awesome and i remember holding my nephew and he was crying i was like here here's your mom and that's the nice thing about being an aunt is you can just hand them back and i knew that i had colic as a baby because my mom had commented on it and i was asking her just today because she had to, to drive me to get in my car i said tell me about when i was a baby and i had colic like what did you think what did you feel what did you do and she said, well, the main thing was that it was so frustrating for me because you just wouldn't stop crying. Like, I, I did everything. Checked your diaper. Do you need to burp? Do you need fed? And you just, like, wah, 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 constant. And she said, it, I, I'm getting the fact that, thing that it was more like, oh, my God, shut up. I'm trying to do something. You're getting on my nerves. But it was more like... I feel bad that you seem to be upset about something and that I can't make you feel better. And she said, my dad, and I don't know how he knew this. See, I was the first baby for both of them. So they had no, and they didn't have the benefit of this program. They really didn't know much about anything. He would take his shirt off and he would hold me up against his chest. So it was like skin to skin warmth. And I don't know why. That sounded kind of weird, but apparently it shut me up. And she said, I just eventually just, just stopped it or, you know, just quit. And that lines up with what the experts say about purple crime. And I'll tell you what, purple's an acronym. If you haven't figured it out, I'll tell you what it, it stands for. And I, I do have this written down in my, my um, Instagram and Facebook so that if you want, you can either write it down or, or get a screenshot of it or whatever. Okay, purple, P-U-R-P-L-E, in case you don't know how to spell purple. P is for peak of crying. Babies apparently have a peak where they cry the most. It may be during the second month, but it usually starts to taper off like by three to five months. U, unexpected. If it's unexpected and unpredictable, episodes come and go without warning. Like they, uh, apparently they cry. I mean, you know, even I know this. If they have a problem, like they're hungry or they peed or they need burped or whatever. But this kind of crying, there's like no apparent reason for. R is resist soothing. Like no matter what you do for them, like my mom said I was, they still cry. P is pain. The second P is pain. They make a face that looks like they're in pain. L is for long-lasting. The crying episodes can last 30 to 40 minutes or go on days at a time until you would 
think that they would eventually tire themselves out. Because crying like that, like, you know, when screaming, that, that puts a lot of, out a lot of energy. And the last letter E is for evening. And I totally never heard of this. There's something called the witching hour. And it's late afternoon or early evening. And it's apparently at this time when crying peaks are last the longest. And I have no idea why. But when your baby's crying, here's how to soothe them. Like my dad did, the skin-to-skin -skin thing, it for some reason eases stress in them. Swaddle them, wrap them in a blanket like a burrito. It makes them feel safe. Move with them, hold them and rock them. That's why they make rocking chairs, I guess. Sway, walk with them. Give them a warm bath. You know how warm baths are relaxing. Take them outside. Get them fresh air. Check their physical cues. Temperature, diaper. That's kind of always one. Do they need burp? Do they need fed? Give them a massage. If none of these work, put them down somewhere safe and walk away. Because assuming that they have no underlying medical issue, they can't cry too much. Like I said, they will eventually just get tired and shut up and go to sleep or whatever. If you find yourself in an agitated state like Alex did, instead of doing what she did, you need to calm yourself down. If you have a partner, a family member, etc., reach out to them and say, can you watch the baby for a while or something. In new parents, self-care is important because I know that they go through problems with sleep, you know, like not getting enough sleep. Make sure that you get sleep, eat healthy, exercise, get outside. And finally, and this is very important to discuss, I mentioned that Alex was suffering from postpartum depression. And I learned this. I did not know this. Have you ever heard of the term baby blues? I thought that that was the same thing as postpartum depression, but apparently it's not. Baby blues happen two to three days after you've given birth, and it supposedly only lasts for like days or a couple weeks. The symptoms are not very, not they're not as severe as actual postpartum depression. You can have mood swings, anxiety, sadness, irritability, feeling overwhelmed, crying, reduced concentration, appetite problems, and sleep problems. Postpartum depression is more severe. And the causes of it, which that's kind of obvious, the physiological changes that your body is going through, like a dramatic drop in estrogen and progesterone, which of, of course are hormones. I didn't realize this, but your thyroid may, for whatever reason, stop putting out a lot of the, the hormone that your body needs to function. So you may end up feeling tired, sluggish, or depressed. Plus, if you have a new baby, your sleep is disrupted. So if you're sleep deprived, you're not, definitely not at your best. You may feel overwhelmed. I mean, that's kind of common sense. Because you literally have a new family member, and that's a lot to deal with for anybody. You can be feel less attractive, struggle with a sense of identity, and strangely, new dads can also get postpartum depression. Now, obviously, they don't have the hormonal changes because they haven't had a baby, but I'm guessing that it would be because of the stress of taking care of a new life, especially with a first-time dad. And the symptoms of postpartum depression are 
depression, severe mood swings, crying, problems bonding with your baby, withdrawing from family and friends, either loss of appetite or eating more, either inability to sleep or sleeping too much, fatigue or loss of energy, anhedonia, which means inability to experience happiness or pleasure and things that, that you used to, irritability and anger, fear of being a bad mother, hopelessness, worthlessness, shame, guilt, and inadequacy, inability to think clearly, make decisions, and concentrate, restlessness, anxiety or panic attacks, thoughts of harming yourself or your baby, and thoughts of death or suicide. Now, if you have postpartum depression and you don't treat it, it can graduate into postpartum psychosis. If you don't know what psychosis is, it's literally when you lose your hold on reality. And it's a very dangerous state of mind to be in. That's what happened to Andrea Yates. And in case you don't know who she is, she drowned her all five of her kids because she was in a psychotic episode. This fortunately is rare. It usually develops a few weeks after you've had your baby. And the symptoms are confusion and disorientation, obsessive thoughts of your baby, hallucinations or delusions, sleep disturbances, paranoia, excessive energy or agitation, and attempts to harm yourself or your baby. Now, these are signs that you should call your doctor. Whatever you have, the depression or problems that you're having don't go away within two weeks. Your problems are getting worse. You're having a hard time caring for your baby. You're having a hard time doing everyday tasks. and you, Or you have thoughts of harming either yourself or your baby. And these are some risk factors that people with these characteristics are more likely to have postpartum depression. History of depression at other times, like, you know, when you're not pregnant or you've not just had a baby. If you're bipolar, if you have had postpartum depression before, if you have family members who have had either postpartum depression or regular depression, if you have experienced some kind of stress other than pregnancy in the past year, if your baby has health problems or special needs, if you have twins or triplets, etc., which is kind of common sense because if you have, I mean, one, one I can imagine will be hard to care for, but if you have three, I, I can't even imagine the stress. You have problems breastfeeding. You are having relationship problems. You have a weak support system. You have financial problems. Or your pregnancy was either unplanned or unwanted. And if, if we're looking at Alex, she has a number of these. She has a family history. She's supposedly bipolar. She's got the relationship problems. So the treatment for either postpartum depression or psychosis is psychotherapy, antidepressants, uh, possibly, you know, some other kind of medicine, and it's possibly electroconvulsive therapy. Yeah, they actually still do that nowadays. It's a lot safer than it used to be. I've never had it, but I read about it. In, in severe cases of depression, it supposedly works pretty good. Postpartum depression is said to be very common with over 3 million cases yearly in the United States. And this really is pretty common sense, but it really makes a lot of sense. If you are, are a mother or I guess a parent and you're upset or stressed, your baby's going to sense that and it's going to upset them. 
So they're going to cry more and fuss. And it's like a, what do you call that, a vicious circle. Now, about Alexandra. The most obvious thing is that here is somebody who had no business having a baby, at, at least at this point in her life. She was young. I don't want to be judgmental and say she wasn't married, but she didn't have a very good support system, it seems. We know her mother wasn't around. Oh, her father, that's right, he, he wasn't around either. She had problems with her baby daddy. You know, they had literally gone into physical fights with each other. She was mentally unstable, and I'm sure that having a baby, you know, getting pregnant and going through this made it even worse. She, at least on one occasion that we know of, took a bunch of Xanax that wasn't hers, so we know she's got some kind of issue there. According to the statistics that I read, she was like the perfect candidate for somebody who would shake their baby. She was young, alone, had a history of family members who were unstable, had a history of being unstable herself. We know that in the day that this happened and the day before, she had been in some kind of agitated state. Of course, there's no telling why, but for whatever reason, she... She was alone with Dylan. Forget Farmville, just throw that out of the equation. She was in a bad mood and she was having trouble coping. For her, again, for her to reach for Xanax and take a shitload of it, she had to be feeling something and she just should not have been alone with him. She should have gone to either a psychologist, a therapist, a psychiatrist, somebody, and got some kind of help. And unfortunately... She made a bad decision, reacted in the wrong way, and somebody died. And I think that she feels guilty, and that she'll always feel guilty. And by the time she gets out of prison, she'll, if, well, she'll be like 70, be too old to have any more kids. But her doctor, Dr. Martin, did a pretty good job of analyzing her and summing everything up. So, lessons that I hope everybody has learned. Don't ever shake a baby, ever. Whether yours or somebody else's or whatever. Just don't. Don't take medicine that's not yours. If you're going to have a baby or you know somebody who's going to, maybe you're going to be a grandparent, learn infant CPR. It's useful to know. It doesn't take very, it's not brain surgery. Learn about the purple crying thing. And I promised you some crime trivia after we finish the episode. So, everybody can check your own tests, test results. You ever do that in school? Okay, question number one. What famous serial killer's last words were, kiss my ass? Come on, guess. Real famous one. John Wayne Gacy. Yep, that's like... So, Gacy. This one I'm going to make multiple choice because it's kind of hard. Which country in the world has the most murders? A. The United States. B. Mexico. C. El Salvador. D. South Africa. The answer is C. El Salvador. In case you don't know where that is, that's in uh, Central America. Their murder rate is 61.80 per 100,000 people. Okay, next question. The opposite. Which country in the world has the least number of murders? 
think cold is in like burr. Iceland, since 2008, they have consistently had the least number of murders. And as a matter of fact, they are also the most literate country. I think their literacy rate is almost 100%, which is really cool. And I think I have at least one listener there from Iceland. So thank you very much for listening to me in your cool, safe, literate country that you have there. Okay, here's another quote. Which famous serial killer said, I'm the most cold-blooded son of a bitch you'll ever meet? The answer is Ted Bundy. Yeah, it sounds like something he'd say he was an asshole. Here's another serial killer. Who was originally called the Valley Intruder? You know how everybody has nicknames. Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. the Night Stalker. Okay, another multiple choice. Which of the following was not a mass murderer? A. Charles Whitman. B. Charles Starkweather. C. Richard Speck. D. Timothy McVeigh. Answer is Charles Starkweather. He was a spree killer in he had his spree in the, I think it was 1950s in Nebraska. Okay. In which United State state was the first prisoner electrocuted in 1890? Just pick a state. It's New York. It happened in 1890, and his name was William Kemmler. And I thought it was Sing Sing, but it was the Auburn Correctional Facility. What is the most common crime in the United States? Think of a crime. It's theft. And finally, what crime is the most likely to be reported? I'll give you a multiple choice. A, auto theft. B, shoplifting. C, murder. D, rape. It's A, auto theft. Okay. No matter how many you got wrong or right, hopefully you learned something and you can give yourself whatever kind of prize you want because I said so. So, <laughs> so next week, I really don't know what we're going to do yet. I have a ton of ideas and I don't know which one I'm going to pick. It's not going to be another Killer Mom. I'll wait a week and do another one of them. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. More importantly, I hope you learned some things because I there was a lot of important stuff. And I will see everybody same time next week. Bye.